Hello and welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-host, Catherine Lotspeech. We are missing Valine this week because she is on her honeymoon in Switzerland, and it looks like she's having a baller time. She's been skiing with her husband, and it's a well-deserved break um, because, as you guys know, she goes 117% all the time and has a hard time getting away. So you get me this week, and even better, I have a really awesome guest for you this week, listeners, we are kicking off our series on ag labor issues, uh, which, you know, if you're tuned into agriculture at all, you know that um, there's there's all kinds of challenges and issues surrounding this topic. So my guest this week is Calvin Beasley. Um, I first met him at the National FFA convention last fall when we got to tour his family's orchard uh, just outside Indianapolis. So Calvin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited that you're here. So let's start with the basics, just like we always do. Can you tell us about your ag operation, the history behind it, what you guys do now? Yeah, so you touched on it a little bit. Um, Most people do think of us as an apple orchard. uh, and That's definitely our main thing that we do. Um, So I'm third generation here at the farm. Um, We grow a variety of specialty crops. So mostly fruits and vegetables, um, things that are geared towards agritourism, um, bringing people onto the farm. That's how we generate our revenue and make money. Um, So we don't grow any traditional row crops, um, everything from apples to strawberries, sweet corn, pumpkins, a wide range of vegetables. And then we are starting to focus more on um, you pick crops specifically, small fruit, things like that. I also consider sunflowers a U-pick crop. We have a sunflower festival. So uh, we're open year-round. We have an on-site market. Um, and that's a little overview of us, basically. So we're very diversified, um, deal a lot with the general public, and we try to sell everything that we grow um, direct to the consumer. Awesome. Well, I mean, just the direct to, cons- to the consumer part is certainly becoming a, you know, a more... I don't know if it's more profitable, but definitely a profitable avenue to be able to kind of diversify your operation. So yeah, I mean, it def- definitely has a higher margin. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit more difficult to scale. Um, for example, you know, if you you're a very large scale apple producer, um, it's going to be hard to to move all of your volume that way. But I think a lot of a lot of operations are realizing that they can they can cut their production back by you know fifty percent or even more and and make more money. Wow. That's, that's a crazy number. I didn't realize that that's what it was. Um, yeah. And I mean, that ties right into the topic that we're going to talk about today. So when, when, uh, my husband's FFA chapter and I visited, um, at national convention, you know, we were blown away by, by the layout of your op- operation and all the activities you have to offer. But what I found was the most valuable was when you spoke to all the gathered students and ag teachers, um, you know, you gave us a really in-depth overview, not just of your operation, but of your segment of the industry and especially the labor challenges that you that you face. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell us, tell us about some of that? I guess the first thing let's start with is what what was the makeup of your labor force before these issues became came to the forefront and what is it now? 
Yeah, and and so as I talk about this, I'll I'll try to make sure I differentiate sort of between our our production labor and our um so I call it the front facing labor, which would be in the market or the agritourism, because they're sort of different. Obviously we're one organization, but the two sides, we're struggling with labor on both sides. Um and there's different problems with each and different solutions to each. But specifically as it relates to the agricultural labor, labor, the production labor, you know, there's no mystery that specialty crops have historically been um, managed and harvested by migrant workers. Um, it's been that way for a very long time. Um, and it's that way really all across the country. It doesn't really matter if you're in the Pacific Northwest, um, in the Central Valley of California, in Florida. Um, it's, that's just the way that it's always been. So for us, for a long time, um, there was a lot of sort of transient groups of migrant laborers that would um, move around the country um, as the season progressed. For example, we had a couple families that would, they would pick peaches um, through the summer in Georgia and the Carolinas. And then right around Labor Day, they would make their way up here and they would pick apples here on our farm through the fall. Um, and, and that was very common, talking to other growers in the Midwest. Um, you could just kind of depend on these groups of people um, being in the area and, and looking for work. And for a variety of reasons, that's no longer the case. Um, those people, you know, they, they've settled down, they've gotten, you know, more permanent jobs, um, and they've also gotten older. So that that's presented a pretty big issue to us. Um, and then on the other side of the business, that's more similar to what I think um, a lot of small businesses are experiencing right now. There's just a shortage of workers. <laughs> we just can't seem to hire people. Um, you know, we're talking about people that are cashiers or people that are stocking um, or just customer service representatives. And, you know, there's just not the same amount of people or the quality of people that are out there looking for part-time positions right now. Um, we've continued to raise wages, um, continued to try to offer more benefits. And sadly, it doesn't seem to have really made a difference in either the quantity or quality of people that are applying for this position. That's a really interesting, interesting thing to know. I, at least on your, um, you know, on your, is it the retail side? Is that a fair way to put it? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So on the retail side, I, that's an interesting thing to hear. Um, you know, that, that you're getting more competitive with wages, especially benefits, you know, that's, that's huge these days. And that's not been something that agriculture has traditionally you know, offered in a, in a, on a, on a grand scale, but why, why do you think that, that there aren't people or what's, what's with the quality of people? What's that about? I mean, is it just, you know, lazy, lazy Gen Z, if we want to pick on them or <laughs> what? what yeah. And I, I, you know, and yeah, I, you know, I don't know exactly. I don't have a, have a, have a great answer, but um, you know, just simple things like scheduling an interview and not showing up for the interview or going to the interview, um, accepting a position and then not showing up on your first day. Um, and like, this is not hyperbole. These are things that have happened to us multiple times in the past year. Um, and it's just really, that that's a new thing for us and we don't even really know how to handle it. And talking to other business owners in our area, they're, they're experiencing the same thing. So what's causing it? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's coming from a place of people not wanting to work or people not 
needing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say exactly. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of gray area. It's not, it's not a white and black situation, but nevertheless, the situation for, for us is, is quite frustrating because not only are we struggling to fill the positions, but then, like I said, in these cases, we're actually um, allocating labor and funding to fill the position only to have that end up being a waste because that candidate decided, you know, very late in the process, they didn't want it. So it's it's a difficult thing to overcome. I will say in the past maybe six months, um, I'm seeing the trend uh, go back the other way a little bit. It does seem like people um, are becoming a little bit more interested in in work again and are more actively seeking the jobs instead of um, employers having to um, be so offensive going out there and finding them. That's definitely an encouraging thing to hear, um, you know, because, you know, we, we've we heard it for a long time, especially from the older generations, you know, coming down on the younger generations, maybe I've just noticed it because I am a millennial, but it seems like, oh, millennials don't know how to work and they don't want to work and it's not the same <laughs> as in our day, you know, and I mean, at this point, millennials, you know, I'm on the younger end of the millennials, like we literally had one run for president in the last cycle, so you know, it's looking more at Gen, at Gen Z, in my opinion. Um, but I, I guess it's, you know, it's probably a confluence of factors. I, I don't think that the pandemic helped any of this at all. You know, people, you know, they were laid off and maybe, you know, they were getting some government help to be able to fill that gap and maybe they just got used to it or, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is either, but it is good to hear that you're seeing a little bit of a reversal of that trend. Something just interesting to note here that I've heard, I, you know, I read this over Christmas was that Janet Yellen, the head of the Fed, said um, that the unemployment rate is so low right now that it indicates that anybody who wants a job has a job. So maybe it's not necessarily a lack of labor, but a lack of interest in working, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And to touch on your point about, you know, COVID and the pandemic changing things, I think that had a profound um, cultural shift, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, with some younger demographics, just in how uh, work, you know, is perceived by them and how necessary that is, you know, in, in your life. Because we had a pretty long period where it was totally acceptable and even encouraged to to not work and to stay home and to Yep. To, to shelter yourself, you know, and that was kind of what you're supposed to do. And I think when you're a young person who maybe doesn't have a lot of life experience, that, that can really profoundly impact um, how you view the world and, and your own life. And but I think that it definitely plays a role in what we're seeing now. Um, and, and I agree that there is a lot of there, there's a lot of people who just simply for whatever reason, and I'm not you know, I don't want to speculate on why that is, but they are choosing to not work whether that's a desire or a need um, or caused by another, you know, circumstance, uh, I don't know, but it definitely is playing a role. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And that's just sort of a dynamic that, that we're facing right now in the industry. Well, and it, I mean, not just agriculture, it seems like you hear about that everywhere. I wonder if another part. Oh of yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if another part of it is, Um, you know, you just hear anecdotally, my parents have a dairy in Utah. Um, 
you know, you hear that you don't get people to show up for the first day of work or they don't show up for the second day of work. And that's because they might realize how hard agriculture work, like production agriculture work really is. Um, is I mean, I I think I remember from from your talk last fall that you said your your migrant workers, you know, there was two of them that you had coming for 30 years or something, and neither one of them had ever taken a sick day. And you get, you know, you get a local labor and those guys, you know, they're off sick or they don't show up for their second or third day of work. And I'm just, just curious, you know, what your perspective on, on that might be. Yeah. The, you know, the type of production labor that you need um, and especially crop operation, we're not talking about sitting in a tractor or being in a combine, um, you know, you mentioned a dairy and, and that's, that's, I think, closer to what we experience here in this industry than what a lot of people, especially young people think working on a farm is going to be like, everybody sees the big equipment, you know, and they think, well, that looks, I want to be an operator. I want to do that. And, and the fact of the matter is when you're growing fruits and vegetables, um, that that's a small percentage of the labor, right? Most of it is, um, it, well, it's what I, we grew up calling it stoop labor because you're stooped over all the time. You're, you're bent yeah. over, you're pulling weeds, you're picking things, you're planting, you're working close to the ground. Um, and that type of labor, um, it is not received very well by, by domestic workers. Um, and I'll kind of go ahead and talk you know, why do we use migrant workers on the farm? Why don't we just hire domestic workers? And there's a very large perception um, in the public and even with our politicians that we do it because it's cheaper, that the migrants are cheap labor. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, even I'm, I'm sure that was true. But I'm telling you <laughs> right now in, in this day and age, it's not cheaper. Um, it would be cheaper for us to hire young domestic workers to do the job. Mm-hmm. The problem is they won't do the job. It's, it's, it's not possible. Um, and it doesn't even matter what the pay, what the wage is. I mean, you could pay somebody, you know, dollars $40 an hour, $100 an hour, and there's just no there's no amount of money that you could pay somebody to go out and do this kind of work because it's really, really hard work. Um, objectively, anybody who looks at it can say that's, you know, if you go out and pull strawberry runners for 14 hours a day, it's brutal work. Um, and you have to have people who are who are willing to do it. So that does create an issue. And, and that's why. Um, you know, and again, I can't speak for the entire industry, obviously, but at least for us, that's that's why migrant workers are just a necessity. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's been my experience too, growing up on my family's farm. You know, we, we moved to Utah from Connecticut in 1995, so that'll be what, 27, 28 years this year. Um, and from day one, the you know, 99.9% of our labor force, uh, besides my family, has been immigrant labor. Um, and for us, you know, they, they've moved here and are more or less permanent. You know, dairy isn't seasonal work. It's all year round. But 
um, you know, those, those guys get paid the exact same as anybody else would. And we have had to become more competitive with our pay too, but uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. You know, we could offer a hundred dollars an hour for a milker. And um, I mean, I don't mean this to sound offensive, but no, no white people, you know, have, have lasted very long in the positions that we have to offer because it is hard. And, you know, a lot of it too, you talk about pulling up strawberry runners, or if you're in, if for me, it's milking cows, it, it can be really tedious, you know, and, um, along, along with the hard manual labor, that might be a, a difficult situation for some people to put up with, but, but no, you, you know, you can't get domestic work to do this kind of work. And so I'm really glad that you brought up the point of, you know, the, the chatter in our society about, oh, migrant labor has taken our jobs and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that statement just really ticks me off because it's not true. You know, I mean, domestic labor doesn't want to do this work. The jobs are there. They just don't want to do it. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. Um, we've seen it time and time again. Um, and it's, I, I think what you said about it being tedious is 100% accurate. It's not always, it's not that it's so physically demanding. It is the psychological aspect <laughs> of doing such a repetitive task over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I would say that's, that's a lot of it. Um, I think you get some young guys out there. If it's just hard physical work, they'll look at it like they're training for football or something. But when it's just going down, you know, 500 foot rows, picking or pulling weeds or something over and over again, um, it's just, it's, it's hard work, you know, is what it is. And you definitely, you know, there's no way that we would survive without having the migrant guys come in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, there's weeds that need to be picked. There's strawberry runners that need to be taken care of. If I remember right, do you have, is it 40,000 apple trees and every single one of those apples has to be picked by hand? You don't have any mechanization for that? Yeah, yeah. So we have 40,000 is probably a pretty, pretty close number. Um, we, we're always, we're, we're kind of flipping to more high density systems. So our acreage is going up our acreage is increasing, but our number of trees is really increasing because we're packing so many more trees on per acre. But yeah, there's very little mechanization um, really in the apple industry as a whole. It's, it's a very, very hot topic. There's a lot of innovation occurring right now. So I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see a lot more of it, um, which is all being spurred by labor, right? There wouldn't be money invested into it exactly. if we had access to affordable, <laughs> affordable labor in good numbers. Um, but for us on our scale, and we're not a large apple producer, we have, um, you know, we're at about 32 acres right now and we'll add a couple more this spring, but we're all, everything's done by hand, all the pruning, um, all the, uh, harvesting, um, we do, you know, thinning, some of it's done by hand. Um, the planting, we do have a tree planter now, but that's still a pretty labor intensive operation. So it, it's a very, um, manual labor intensive crop to grow. And that's how pretty much all of our crops are as well. Yeah. And that just, I mean, that just reinforces the point. I mean, hand picking 40,000 apple trees is just, it boggles the mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it's a lot of work and they, I mean, that's the type of thing too, where, you know, you're going to work, you're going to start your day at maybe four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. Um, 
and, and you'll work at least 12, 14 hours a day. And there are times it's not, we try not to work seven days a week, but sometimes we have to, um, we get into a situation where there is more work to be done than we have labor. And it's important for, you know, for producers to know that they have a labor force that when they ask them and say, Hey guys, are you, can we do this? Can we get it done? That they're going to, not only say yes, but want to get it done because they work so hard to get the crop at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just the way agriculture works, right? It's just, that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we've definitely talked about a lot of the issues out there. And I think we probably could for, you know, several more hours it demands a lot of brain <laughs> space and it's going to take, in my opinion, it's going to take multi-pronged approaches to try and get this issue, you know, more resolved than it has been. Um, in your experience, so you have you have migrant labor um, who are more seasonal. So I think I think you use probably an H two A system. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So we we did our first round of H two A. That would have been in. 2021 so we just got done with our second contract mm-hmm. um and then this year we've had so we've had the same four guys so it's a, it's a small group you know it's not some of these farms are bringing in you know 500 600 people mm-hmm. same four guys we've had they're coming back this year and then we're also going to add a smaller shorter um two-man contract that will only be here for about five months just to kind of get through give us a little extra for our peak season okay Okay. So for our listeners who might not be familiar, can you explain how an H-2A contract works? Yeah. So an H-2A contract is basically a government visa program um, for agriculture. And it allows producers to, um, you know, bring guys from out of the country here to work or, or women um, legally and safely. And there's, um, all kinds of different rules and regulations that you have to follow. And for many of us in, in production ag, um, that's our lifeline. Um, it's, it's a very flawed lifeline, but it's pretty much all that we have. Um, you know, I touched on a little bit earlier about how that, that kind of natural flow of migrant labor has, has dried up. And a lot of us do have guys. So I, I have a family that's been, living here on the farm as long as I've been alive. Um, and, and they're obviously still a big part of what we do, but that generation is getting older. Um, you know, they're in their sixties and we just got done talking about the demands of the type of work that we're doing here. So as you can imagine, it's, it's a problem when your workforce is all in their fifties and sixties, you need to start (laughs) getting an injection of youth, um, especially while the older generation is still working so they can learn from them. Um, because those guys, you know, I, I can't teach people all the things that they do um, because they just have such a skill um, and, and knowledge from, from doing those jobs for so long. It's really important for, for the younger guys to be able to work alongside the older ones. So H2A is, is pretty much the only way to do it. And it's good in the fact that it is legal and it's safe and it's usually a pretty reliable source as long as you can kind of... Um, provide referrals as to you know the, the the individual that you want to bring you have to provide them housing you have to provide them transportation um 
there's a lot of paperwork involved with it. So for a lot of us, we will hire a third party to kind of mediate that paperwork, um, basically sort of act like an attorney um, between us and the government, making sure that everything gets done the right way so that we don't hit delays and, and end up, you know, our guys showing up later than we need them, that sort of thing. <clears throat> so it's, it's a very expensive program. And that's why I said, you know, it's easy to, you know, you might look at what their wage is and think, well, that's a pretty good deal for you guys as a producer. But what most people don't understand is that you're paying them that wage, but you're also paying for their housing. Um, in our case, we're, we're buying them a vehicle to drive while they're here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're providing for their transportation to and from the country. So when they fly home or when they come up here. Um, and then you're going to have all of your fees that are involved, your administrative fees involved with the program itself. So when you add all that in and kind of look at that as a function of the wage, it becomes very expensive pretty quickly. And it makes them, um, in a lot of cases, I think more expensive than a domestic worker would be. And it's a contract, right? So you're, you know, when they're here, um, you're contractually obligated to pay them um, you know, 50% of what their contract would be worth. And that's based off of the 40 hour work week. So that's especially in the perennial crops like us, we have a, a major freeze event or frost event come through that decimates our apple crop. Um, I don't need as many laborers now, right? Because there's not going to be as much fruit to pick, but those guys are already here and I'm obligated to, to keep them here for at least 50% of the contract. So wow, there's a lot of risk involved as well. So sure. Yeah. I didn't you know. know that was the case. Co- yeah. And there's a lot of pitfalls to it and it's, it's, it's changing every year. You know, every year there are things that get um, tweaked. Um, but there's a lot of people in the industry that are calling for really a comprehensive overhaul of the program. Um, instead of making tweaks, uh, we need to tear it down and, and build it back again and try to have a more sustainable platform for us going forward. And I think that's necessary because whereas this was looked at as a source of supplemental labor 10, 15 years ago, uh, it's it's now pretty much all that the industry has. And a lot of producers, uh, myself included, we kind of feel like we're at a very disadvantaged position, um, not only because of a lot of the regulations and lack of flexibility, but also just because of the continued increase in cost. Um, and the wage continues to increase each year as well. And that's led to a lot of frustration. Um, you know, I'm, we're fortunate to be diversified. We do all that direct marketing, so that definitely gives us more margin built into our products, and it allows us to be more flexible when these things happen. But for large wholesale market producers who are already operating on very, very slim margins, and in some cases, no margins, um, Mm -hmm. it's putting them behind the eight ball. 100%. I'm so glad that you're bringing all of this up because this is, I mean, you're getting to the crux of the issues of, of labor in America. And you know, I'm not sure. It's really easy to hear a soundbite, you know, in the media and listen to a politician pop off um, and, you know, form form an opinion around it without really understanding, you know, some of the vagaries of the issues. And I, I, <laughs> I'm really glad to hear you say, um, you know, these little tweaks can't, it's not going to fix the problem. You know, instead of Band-Aids, we need to break the bone and reset it, just kind of burn it to the ground and start all over. Um so that's a frustrating thing, though, in our society is that 
you know, everything is so polarized and there's so much gridlock in Washington, but, you know, is, is, is something like this, is it going to get worked on in a timely manner? And I would argue no, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. And also, I mean, I, I would also argue that this kind of push for change needs to come from producers like yourself. So curious what, what, um, you know, what you have for ideas for approaches to try and try and get this actually fixed. Yeah. And that's, that's a very, you know, we, we could, we could spend a whole episode, I think, talking about potential solutions. Um, I don't have a lot of faith in a solution coming from, from Washington. Um, now that's not to say that people shouldn't continue to push for it, that we shouldn't reach out to our local representatives, because I think a lot of times, well, we, we talked about earlier when we said that there's a misconception that immigrant migrant labor is cheap, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you have to kind of fight that right at the very beginning and get these politicians to understand, you know, what the situation actually is and what it means, you know, for producers. But then at the same time, I don't think that depending or waiting on or hoping for legislative change is the most prudent thing to do in the industry. I think a lot of producers, um, you need to look at your own operation and you need to figure out, I might not be able to control this. This is out of my control. Um, I need to plan on my labor costs increasing, or I need to plan on maybe not having as much labor. How can I keep my business afloat? How can I make myself more profitable? And I think you are seeing that a lot. You're seeing a lot of large producers that are becoming more vertically integrated and they are finding direct marketing channels. Um, they're rebranding themselves. So you're seeing places that, you know, they used to just pick all their apples and send it to a co-op to pack it and then they ship it to grocery stores. Now you're seeing some of those places saying, maybe we will do some U-Pick. Maybe we'll convert a five acre block to U-Pick. We'll build a small market here. And, oh, let's have somebody build an online store for us and we can ship apples all across the country. So mm-hmm. I think you're seeing some of that innovation occurring, which I think is really good for the industry as a whole because you get into the situation where your sole purpose is efficient production, right? But you become a price taker and you become very dependent on external market influences, (laughs) which dictate whether or not your business survives or not. And that's just really scary for me. And it's easy for me to say, because we're not big, we've always been direct marketers, but when I meet with my colleagues in the industry and they talk about some of these struggles that they're experiencing, um, it's, it's quite terrifying for me to think about, you know, because there's just so much that's out of their control. So anyway, I, that might not have directly answered your question as to what, you know, what can fix the labor problem. But I think some introspective thought um, from all producers is going to be a good thing, because even if we fix this problem, there's going to be another one. Right. Yep. Um, we're living during a time of a lot of polarization, as you said. Um, and a lot of upheaval, and frankly, a lot of really bad information. Um, And bad information influences people's opinions, which cause them to, you know, ask for certain things from their politicians that could be misguided. And then that causes um, issues for all types of businesses, not just agriculture. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, you know, this is a really good side note to what we're just 
to discussing. I mean, the, the fact that you brought up uh, that most of agriculture is price takers versus price makers is something that has always frustrated me. And I know that there's not necessarily a simple answer when you're in the commodity business, like, you know, like most dairy farming or crop farming or things like that. But um, it, 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 it's a frustrating situation to be in, you know, considering inflation, rising costs, you know, just the way that they have been. And then, um, yeah, I mean, those situations drive greater efficiency, technological innovation, you know, and I mean, there's always opportunities to do better no matter what, but all of these issues are sort of conspiring to have to drive necessary change like that in order to survive in the business. So, you know, I, I really appreciate you bringing up those points. And just right now, I'm going to invite you back so that we can dive into those issues on a whole nother episode. <laughs> definitely things we'd, we'd like to address here. But yeah, I mean, like you said, there's there's a lot of polarization and, and you know, a lot of um, inertia in, in trying to address this kind of issue. And I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe it's going to take until something breaks really badly, you know, when it becomes a dumpster fire and something has to be done right now, which is, you know, that's not an ideal situation either, but maybe that's how it will start. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, you hope it it won't get to that point, but there's a lot of people who feel like it already is there. And I just, you know, I, I think, I, I think that outreach is so important and just trying to educate consumers as well. Um, I, as we talk about how difficult it's getting to produce these crops, you know, in this country, and then we look at some crops that are being imported, um, especially through fruits and vegetables, things coming out of Mexico, you know, everybody wants affordable food, they want prices to stay low, but I think it's important to maybe always try to educate people, reach out to them to think about where their food come, comes from, right? That's something that we've been you know, talking about in the industry now for years and years and years is locally grown, local food, where does it come from? How did it get to me? Um, and that's, I think, still of paramount importance. I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the labor issues, with inflation, with all the macroeconomic things that we're dealing with. Um, I think always remembering to try to reach that hand out to the consumer to get them to see the value in what we're producing it's only going to lead to good things for the industry as we go forward. Wow. I, I am so impressed with what you just said, having, you know, reaching a hand out to the consumer, because all we've been hearing for the last 15 years, 20 years, whatever it is, is to tell your story, and educate the consumer. And those are two such polarizing phrases, in my opinion. Um, right. it, it's not nice to be told, well, you need to be educated on what I'm an expert on because <laughs> you know, that's, that's a really good way to turn somebody off and just kill a conversation. And that's absolutely not what we need, but I've never had, you know, a good idea for a, a phrase that is more productive and reaching a handout really, really hits that mark. So that's, you've just solved a decade long frustration for me. <laughs> <laughs> But no, you're you're a hundred percent right. It, it, it it's going to take that kind of a partnership and and trust on both sides to be able you know be able to to try and get these kinds of issues solved. So yep, absolutely. And just you know, I think people. Well, I grew up you know with a generation of growers who weren't excited about social media and didn't want to get up and talk to people and didn't want to you know my. <laughs> 
my father was almost never in the market, right? He didn't want to interact with the customers and that's how that whole generation of growers was. And that's, you know, I'm from the Apple industry, but I think that is probably true for a lot of agriculture as a whole. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of funny to look back and, and laugh about, you know, as we remember that generation. But I think that ag has, for a while, had kind of a chronic issue of being poor at communication and poor at self-promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, saying things like, you know, reach the hand out to the consumer. Um, I think people want to be closer to agriculture. We just have to let them in a little bit. Um, we always get so worried that they're going to not like what we're doing or they're going to have an issue with it. And it's amazing what will happen if you just take the time to have a conversation and, and explain, you know, you know, any questions that they might have. 100%. That's such a refreshing perspective to hear, especially from an actual producer such as yourself. You're absolutely right. I mean, producers by and large, in my experience, I mean, my dad is a great example too. you know, they, you just want to get on with the day-to-day work. You know, they went into ag to, to work the land, to be with the animals, you know, to, to be on that side of the industry and, and communicating with the people they sell their products to isn't necessarily high on their list or something that they feel like they're proficient at. And so, you know, it's nice to hear that from you yourself. And that's, you know, a big part of the reason that Valley even started this podcast is to try and fill that gap from people like ourselves who grew up in production ag and now, you know, have a different perspective being in, in support industries, but you're a hundred percent right. And, you know, it, it certainly added to, you know, a lot of the issues that we face today, but like you said too, it, it's a scary and risky thing to open yourself up to somebody outside of the industry because, you know, on the face of it, they might not understand why you do what you do. They might not like it, you know, and, Again, it's easy to form opinions with a very small amount of information that don't tell the whole story. So it's it's a complicated it's a complicated issue. It is, yeah, and it's it's going to continue to be. <laughs> it's not going to change anytime soon. Nope, nope, it's not. So we just you know we have to recognize that and then try and get creative on how we can approach it because it's it's not black and white like you said earlier. It's not a one size fits all. It you know it's very much going to take several tailored approaches to to address it and then to continue to address it, you know, it's sort of like a business plan, you know, it's no use unless you keep revisiting it and updating it and, you know, evolving as you go along is first iteration. You know, they always say first plan doesn't survive contact with the enemy. And then if you don't, you don't revisit it, it's just going to be a door, a door block, you know, just sitting in your drawer and not of any use. So I think, you know, it's the same in, in trying to, to approach and solve these kind of issues that we've been talking about has it's going to take constant evolution um to to get there yeah absolutely it's it's um you know it's a huge challenge but i think it's an exciting one um because the industry is, is definitely changing right i mean that's why that's why you guys are doing what you're doing right that's why you started this podcast like you said is to address these challenges because I think things are are more fluid than they've been in a couple generations, and it's it is scary because change is scary. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of us that are, you know, especially multi generational farms. Things have been relatively stable and steady for a long time, and, and now there's uncertainty. But that also brings about a lot of opportunity. Um, and I think if you just have the right attitude about it and are proactive about doing the things that your individual operation needs to do. Um, you know, whether that's marketing or 
financial organization or, you know, communicating with your local politicians about ag reforms. Um, all of those things present an opportunity for you to come out of this um, in a better place. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, you know, I haven't found anything in our conversation to disagree with. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> disagreeing is a good thing to try and get to, to some other points. But in this case, um, you know, I think agreement on, on this sort of stuff is certainly a beneficial thing to try and, and move forward in this kind of a situation. So, yeah, I think your perspective is, is absolutely great. So, this conversation has been excellent. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, there's there's been several several points made that we'd just love to have you back on and, and dive into a little bit deeper, but um, let you get back to, to what you have to do every day. But before you go, uh, do you have any parting thoughts? Um, anything else you'd like to share? I just I just want to thank you for having me on. And I think what you guys are doing is, is really important. Um, I think it's really neat. It provides um, a platform that somebody like myself wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I feel really fortunate to be asked to, to share my thoughts. Um, you know, we're a, we're a small little piece of this giant world. Um, and it, it just feels great to have a, have a platform to, to communicate a little bit about what we're seeing and what we're dealing with and what our thoughts are. And um, sometimes these things allow us to be connected to other people in the industry and you know, through those connections and networking, I think that's how you can really get to where um, change can happen and we can actually impact some some larger forces that are out there that might be acting against us at the moment. So yeah. like I said, I'm just thankful for the opportunity and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I'll just, I'll put a little bit of a plug in here for you. Uh, listeners, if you are anywhere near Indiana, you have got to go visit uh, Beasley's Orchard. It is a really cool setup, uh, really welcoming environment, and the hot cider is bar none, the best I have ever had. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, when I was there, the apple cannons weren't in uh, weren't in use, but um, I'm going to make it back there and definitely give that a try because that just sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, Calvin, thank you again. And listeners, um, until next week, we are Millennial Ag. While you're listening to us and finding us on social media, please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and especially review us. That keeps us top of the algorithm and uh, will help you see more of our content that we're hoping is you know helpful and useful to you as we go along. So thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>